Hiya, I'm Alex Johnson and welcome to the Yellow Rugby Podcast, your home of golf rugby. My aim of the show is to provide a weekly podcast that looks at all the rugby taking place here in the region. Please like, share and subscribe and you can find Yalla on most social media channels out there. Right, dream dinner guest. I think it would be... Um, I think it would be Gareth Chilcott. I've met Gareth Chilcott a number of times and he is hilarious. So he's one of those guys that is always positive, he's never negative, yeah. and he's always got good things to say about everyone. He's got some great stories. Um, and I could just imagine having dinner with him. Well, I have had, you know, having had dinner with him, he's he's just non-stop laughter it's just brilliant great fun okay how do you spend your days off how do i spend my days off uh well it depends if it's in the rugby season or out the rugby season so uh if it's in the rugby season obviously i'm down following the local rugby here as much as i possibly can um if it's out the rugby season then uh uh, I like to. I, I would normally like to get on a boat and and sail around the coast. So I, I've I've got my captain's license and I, and I like to get out on the sea. To be honest, that's what okay. I really enjoyed it. To do any mm. fishing? No, I hate fishing. I like gin yeah. drinking. Oh yeah, that's a much better sport, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of the, the UAE, then what's your favourite place to visit within the UAE? My favourite place to visit in the UAE. Again, obviously the seas off the coast of Abu Dhabi are spectacular. I think the difference between Abu Dhabi and Dubai is the fact that Abu Dhabi have so many natural islands and habitats. So uh, certainly in the first years before the development started, it would be very common to see camels swimming between islands, which was really weird. So you can imagine when we first went out in the sea, we saw this head and you think of a camel's head and then you saw the hump sticking out the water here on Sadia island but it used they used to they used to they used to swim a little bit across the islands which is quite strange quite weird to see and uh dolphins it was very common to see the dolphins coming in inshore very close to the so one of the things we used to do is to throw uh, a ski rope off the back of the boat and we would tow people on the back of the boat so they could the dolphins would swim alongside them, which uh, oh, which wow. was amazing. Yeah, right. Absolutely amazing. So, were you so, able yeah, to think, explore those islands at all? Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, we used to camp out. You got a lot of desert foxes back in those days as well. So a lot of those islands today are developed. So they're a lot different today. But back in the old days, yeah, you were able to go out. Obviously, there were some restricted areas because of the oil uh, fields and stuff, but... But yeah, there was. And it would be very common, actually, um, in the 90s for the rugby guys to actually all go out on their boat. So, you know, you'd literally have 20, 30, 40 people uh, going out to an island. And it's like, you know, it's fantastic because you had all nationalities, all different foods. And, uh, you know, when we had celebrities come in to do dinners, they would come out to the islands with us and they were like, well, this is paradise. You know, this is amazing, which it is. I mean, if you go to the White Sands and the Turquoise Seas, uh, I don't think there's many places in the world that can beat beat those islands, really. Yeah, sounds amazing. I could do with some of that now. Yeah, well, once the weather cools down a little bit, I think I could uh, do with some of that. Yeah. Uh, right, your final one, Oasis or Blur? 
Oasis of Blur. For me, Blur. Fantastic. Mm. Which, which is your favourite song by Blur? Oh, my God. I don't know. I have no idea. Give Just me a song. Be, better, better crack with it. Nice, nice I human think so. beings. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, yeah, yeah. I think Oasis, I didn't like their attitude, to be honest. It's the attitude. The, the, the I, I wasn't that, no, I was never into their attitude. Blur was just, uh, for me, they were just uh, more uh, more of a just a good fun band, you know, great songs. Not that I can remember any of the, the titles, but, um, but well, yeah. I had Matt Bourne yeah. on uh, last week, and he, he said Blur as well, and song two. Song two is a real rocker yeah, just before you go out to a rugby match. So, yeah, I can yeah, yeah. Uh, appreciate that one. Uh, right. Andy Cole, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you've been around for, well, you've been around the Middle East for many years now. Can you take us back to the days of the Arabian Gulf rugby? Look, the, the rug, rugby really started here in the... Um, 60s. Uh, it really started in the Middle East. 1947, I believe, is the first first match ever taken place in Kuwait, which was more of a sort of military thing. But but in the 1960s, you start start to see teams like Dubai Exiles and start to emerge. Um, 1970 it was the first league. Was the first time they had league. So Abu Dhabi was one of the first uh, clubs. Sharjah Wanderers and and so on. Uh, Bahrain and 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 so on. So it really sort of started there. Um, the Arabian Gulf was was really formed um, later on. That that came sort of uh, early nineties uh, when they formed the Arabian Gulf. But there was a a Gulf League uh, and a cup that 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 was in the seventies and eighties. And interestingly, if you look back at the history of the records, you'll see that in the seventies, most of the teams winning the leagues back those were from Saudi Arabia. So rugby in Saudi was strong, which a lot of people don't realise. You, you only saw um, really uh, Dubai Exiles feature in the first 15 years of rugby out here. Exiles are the only club that featured once, only once or twice in that first 15 years. Saudi were really winning everything back then. Um, so so that that's quite, people don't realise that. So I, I, I actually have um, a book in, in front of me that was sent to me by... Um, a gentleman that played for Abu Dhabi in the 1970s, uh, which gives a lot of memorabilia and lots of information, which is fantastic. But in the old days, you would have teams from Kuwait, uh, Saudi, Bahrain, uh, Oman, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Sharjah. That was your league. Uh, and no one played on grass. No one. When I first arrived, there was no grass, literally. So I thought, what the hell is this, you know? And uh, first of all, I was really surprised there was rugby here. And then secondly, where's where what sand? What is this? So, so it was a, it was a bit crazy. And actually, which is another interesting thing, when when the Dubai Sevens was going into the international uh, stage of its sort of development and starting to invite, invite these overseas teams, it's become uh, part of the RB circuit. They had to switch to grass pitches, and there was actually. Um, there was conflict in the club whether they wanted to grass their pitches or not, believe it or not. Some wanted to keep, keep traditional to sand, but obviously if they did that, they couldn't have the IRB service, uh, uh, sector here. So so that's that's another thing that people may not know about, but it, they obviously made that decision to go to grass and then today we can see what it's grown to. But, but yeah, it was a very, very different era to what it is today. You've got to remember 
you know, I came early 90s. Uh, you had people here that were fantastic rugby players because it was not professional in that era. So uh, when the Arabian Gulf took part, which is one of the reasons it was formed, it took part in the World Cup uh, playoffs for the 1995 World Cup. And uh, so they formed early 1990s, 91. And at that point, um, you had players that are, were literally all black trialists and that played international rugby around the world. But because it was not paid at club level, they were here working. So we were fortunate to have those guys in, in our side. So it was actually quite a strong team, uh, the Revian Gulf back in those days, believe it or not. So it, it was uh, interesting. In those days, we were part of the African zone. So we would play the likes of Namibia, Zimbabwe, uh, Kenya, those sort of teams in, in Africa. Africa, uh, which was also interesting. So you would tour. Uh, you would go. You would go to Africa and have games. They would come here. Amazing. Yeah, these were properly. You know, these are proper IRB World Cup qualification games um, that we were taking part in for the '95 World Cup. I think um, Namibia and Zimbabwe were the teams that went through for '95. Uh, and the same for '99 as well. We the campaign. I think, I think the following campaign we then switched to the Asia Zone. So which today the UAE now play in the Asia Zone. So uh, the the Arabian Gulf switched to that. I think towards the end of the '90s, beginning of 2000, um, which probably made more sense to be honest. Uh, so yeah, a lot more teams to compete with. But back in those early days, the challenges were different because. You know, I was based in Abu Dhabi, so Abu Dhabi never had a permanent pitch. It still doesn't. So it's very nomadic. You, you didn't know where you're going to train, let alone where you're going to play. You know, it was it was very strange. Uh, I mean, I remember my first training session in Abu Dhabi. I arrived. I think I called the guys as soon as I arrived. And three days later, I picked up to go training. They took me to this villa in an urban area of Abu Dhabi city. And I was thinking, well, where's the training pitch? I said, oh, no, we run to the beach. I said, what? Yeah, yeah, we run a mile and a half this way. And we go on to the beach and we train under the streetlights. And they literally were running on the beach. And that was their training sessions with streetlights. So you could see when you're passing the ball one way. You couldn't see anything, but when you pass the other way, it was black sea, you know. So uh, that was, that was yeah, that was quite strange. And line outs were in the car park, literally in a car park. So it was uh, very, very different. Uh, they used to drag a piece of metal around the pitch to make it flat uh, and then have cups of line to make the lines. You know, if the wind was strong, the lines were gone within 15 minutes. You know, it was, it was very, uh, very different, very basic. Uh, and then as you traveled around the Gulf, you had places like Muscat would mix, mix stone with their sand to make it firm. But then you went down on stone and took cuts out your knee, right? You go into Bahrain and they mixed oil with the sand. So so then in the heat of the sun, you know, your feet would actually, if you stood around too long, it starts to burn. It was really quite hot. Uh, if you went to Sharjah um, in the old days, the, you used to have get effluent on the pitch uh, where the sewage plant would overflow onto the pitch. So they, you had micro bugs in the sand. So people actually had these things eating away their flesh. Uh, not, not, no word of a lie. It, it was like that. It was, 
you got a nick and you had to wash with this stuff afterwards to clean it. It was, it really was like that in the old days. It really was. Um, and I think the other thing which was different back then to what we've got now is, is, is travel. Uh, you know, one, if you managed to get everyone to the airport, did they remember their passports to travel? Because we, our games were travel. We were obviously flying quite a lot. Kuwait, Bahrain, the Saudi teams came into Bahrain to play Qatar, Muscat. So lots of flights, and you played them twice. So there, and you know, because we're in enough teams, so you'd play there. So you might lose a couple of people at the airport because they forgot their passport. Or then you go to the other country and they've changed their visa restrictions and you might lose another couple of players because they're nationality. So you, you end up getting to the pitch with perhaps not the side you expected to. Uh, so that was that was quite common for teams. In Ramadan, you weren't allowed to drink water during the day. So you imagine playing in the heat here and not being able to drink water. And that you know, went I, across the board for all the Westerners as well. It was the, the full... Rule. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. know I've been here 10 years and it's changed so much during Ramadan. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there have been, there were times where people were actually, the, the police were called because they were seen drinking water on a pitch. So literally, it went, went to that level. Um, you know, we, we lost the pitch in Abu Dhabi once because uh, ladies were playing rugby during Ramadan and obviously with their shorts on, their legs were showing. So somebody made a complaint. Next thing, we were kicked off the pitch. You know, so it was really like that in the early days of rugby here. It was, it was um, yeah, very different. Um, yeah, and then scheduled flights. You didn't have Emirates flying everywhere in those days, so you'd have to take different flights. Gulf Air was probably the main airline at the time, but they were very, you know, you, you'd have to fly in a maybe you know, eight in the morning to play at four in the afternoon. And then, you know, you don't get back to the next day. And often you get bumped off of flights if it's overbooked. So, you, you know, half the players have to stay behind. They couldn't get back to work. So you had issues like that, which uh, obviously today we don't have those issues. Yeah. Wow. It just seems mind-blowing that that was how it was back then. And, you know, we're not going that far back, are we, really? When not really, no. No, no, 25, uh, 30. Yeah, the 90s yeah. was a, a great time to be around the sport of rugby. Right? It was just, you know, Joe Alomo coming onto the scene. He was the real first famous person. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, he was, here because, he was here because of the Dubai Sevens, like many, many uh, top players that came out here. Uh, he'd been, he's been invited back for dinners. Um, interestingly, my mum, who's now, bless her heart, 83, um, she's only been to the UAE once in all the years I've been here. And she happened to meet Jonah Lomo uh, at uh, an event here. And she still remembers his name at 83. And she doesn't really know a great deal about rugby, but she still remembers him. It's funny, isn't it? Uh, you know, but just by chance, she was here when he was here. Yeah, yeah he was a, such an icon. Um, so within the um, Arabian Gulf, did you have the full spectrum like you do these days with the ages? So w was there any mini in youth rugby or was it literally yeah. just, uh, you know, it was for the seniors? So um, mini in youth. So back in those days, a few of the very few of the schools played. Some did, but very few. 
Um, it, so it started, could you remember that? So when I came then, the population in the Middle East would have been about 2 million. Um, and today it's hovering around 12, 14 million, depends what, you know, where you're looking. So obviously it's been a big, it's been big growth, growth, but we did kick off Minion Youth in Abu Dhabi and Dubai and around the Gulf. It all sort of started really in the early 90s, I, I guess. There, there was a bit of sort of uh, Minion Youth games and there was some uh, one-off ladies rugby before that, but it's not. there was nothing really structured, I would say. So the structure of Minion Youth and the structure of ladies rugby sort of came in after the Arabian Gulf was formed. I think it then gave a pathway for for clubs to be able to follow, um, and they they brought in a development officer, and I think that really helped to start to to build that. Uh, so I know you know we sort of built about hundred odd players in Abu Dhabi by mid nineties. We had ladies rugby up and running with two teams by by mid nine been 90s so and not just that's obviously the other clubs around around the golf region as well so so that 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 helped and i think grass pitches helped as well you know suddenly when teams started getting grass pitches again you, you saw more children come you saw more ladies come to play rugby and uh, that really helped the sport for sure yeah okay um and what happened with the arabian gulf rugby how, how come it fizzled out what, what brought an end to that yeah, it's a it's a bit sad in a way. Um, I I have I've got two hats on on uh, on why uh, it was disbanded as a union, but I'll just stick to one, uh, which is the official one. <laughs> and and this this was really around the time when the IRB was trying to expand rugby to more countries to play, uh, expand membership, and they were trying to stop. Uh, uh, amalgamations of 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 countries, so places like the Pacific Islands, they wanted every island to be standalone, um, and uh, and because we were a mix, the Arabian Gulf, our international squad was made up with players from all over the Middle East, from Egypt across to you know Iran down to Yemen, really all that section made up our team of the Arabian Gulf. So they wanted each nation to stand alone. There was a lot of opposition from the locals, be local rugby enthusiasts, because we realised that Bahrain has one team, Qatar at the time had one team, Oman had one team, you know, Kuwait. Now, are these how are these countries going to have a union? How are they going to be able to play rugby? Uh, there were there was there was a lot of strong. Um, strong views in the UAE in particular that the UAE should have its own league and they shouldn't involve these other countries because of the cost of flying in and out of those countries. So it, this is a few years before the Arabian Gulf was actually disbanded. So obviously the, the countries outside the UAE didn't want that to happen because if that happened, the, you know, where, how, where are they going to get their sport from? So it, it was a difficult one. Um, uh, I, mine was keep keep all the countries involved try and keep that 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 thing going because I could see those clubs were just they were just going to disappear uh, or they potentially could disappear so so the reason why was because the Arabian Gulf was a conglomerate they wanted to make it standalone countries I was uh, the chairman at the time of the Arabian Gulf when the decision was made by the IRB um, I literally was in the role for only a few months and I was told 
would be disbanded. So I thought, great. So I then had a three, three to four year window in which to hand over to the UAE. But because I was chairman of the Arabian Gulf, I also had a responsibility to all the other countries as well. So I spent a lot of time helping each one develop uh, their own pathways for when the split would happen. Um, we did try very hard to form uh, a West Asia uh, um, sort of company, entity, in which all the, the clubs could report into. We spent a lot of time. We spent a lot of time with lawyers, with the IRB, the local lawyers, uh, and so on. We also had the issue, obviously, commercially with Emirates Airlines because the agreements were with the Arabian Gulf and it was begin, you know, going to be split away to UAE and so on. So it was a lot of... It wasn't just rugby things. It was actually all the, all the stuff that goes behind the scenes as well. So it was quite a long, drawn-out process and quite painful for a lot of people, as you can imagine. But anyway, finally it was done. Um, we we uh, uh, gave our... Uh, our administrators over to the UAE to help them set up the UAE. We flew with the UAE uh, gov gov uh, uh, representatives to Hong Kong to get them voted onto Asian rugby. We wrote their manifesto. We wrote their um, constitution for them. So we did a lot of stuff to help them. We, we, we didn't push against. Once we knew the decision was made, it wasn't going to be uh, revoked. We then helped as much as we can with every union um, and, and we helped them get uh, membership uh, and spoke on their behalf as well in Hong Kong. So, so we were very much part of that process and we tried to make the process as smooth as possible for the UAE. Even to the extent that I wrote to the IRB uh, back in those days to ensure that the players that play for the Arabian Gulf, because the next issue is... Who Now, you've got to remember that uh, we, I, I don't know if you know this either, but the Arabian Gulf at that point, we were the highest climbing union in the world. We, in 2010-11, we climbed up to 30th in the world. We were ranked 30th in the world as a nation. Uh, from, okay, so not bad. We're, and we were beating South Korea, who we were ranked in the early you know, 20, 22, 23. Uh, and and we, we gave a, a great performance against Japan uh, as well, away in Japan. Um, and they didn't beat us by that much, really, considering. So the, the the team had done really well. It was our, you know, swan song. We were on our way out. So they gave it. To, but these players came from Bahrain. They came from Saudi. They came from Kuwait. They came from Oman. Where were they going to play afterwards? Because these countries didn't have enough players to form a team. So I, I managed to get dispensation from the IRB that any player that had played for the Arabian Gulf could play for the UAE, um, which again is very unusual back in those days for them to give that sort of approval. And it did take a lot of negotiation. Um, and some of those players did carry on playing for the UAE, um, which was which was that was good. Um, but but yeah, that's I think that's where we won. But the, the, my only issue with that was that the, at that time I think the, the UAE were a bit naive. They wanted to put all Emiratis in the team initially. And we I think they went from 30th ranking in the world, which they allowed them to start at Premiership Rugby, and they dropped all the way down to third division and I don't know 80 something in the world. 
and I think it's, it's it, it took them quite a long time. I think something like ten years to start allowing expatriates back into the side, which we now see today. And they started to win again, especially in sevens. Um, and, but that was my recommendation. I, I tried to give them the uh, the model of Hong Kong. So in Hong Kong, they have the main team with expatriates, and then they have the development team. I think they call the Dragons or something like this with, that come through uh, once they're good enough. Um, and I really pushed them to take that, adopt that sort of idea. But they they wanted to go full Emirati initially, which I think was a bit of a shame. But anyway, it is what it is. But they are coming back up now, which is positive. Do you think the likes of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, I know Doha, they're back in the fold this year. Um, Muscat, are they on the up again? I know they've had a few tough years, but... Yeah. Do you think there's sort of a, a resurgence of rugby in the in the Gulf region now? So um, I do. I still try to follow as many of the teams as I can. I keep you know online, uh, and I can see that in, in Saudi it's definitely growing. I can see more and more teams joining their leagues, uh, which is great to see. Uh, so that that's up and running. Bahrain's still strong. Qatar's still strong. In Qatar, they've got more. They've got a few teams over there now in a local league, which we know about. So that's good. Kuwait's gone very quiet. I don't know what's happening in Kuwait anymore. To be honest, it's gone very, very quiet over there. I know they did have many youth that were taking part in competitions and so on, but the senior level they seem to dropped away a bit. Really, um, Muscat. There, there is. I met the gentleman down there. There's actually a, a, an Omani that's taken over the rugby league. So there is a. What's the word? There is a. They want to. An uh, interest. The there is an interest in doing it. Yeah, yeah, there's an interest. Yeah, there's an interest there. But whether they've got the players, that's that's the thing. Um, you know, the, they don't really have the the base that they used to have with the expatriates down there and the military down there that they used to be there. They were very strong in the '90s and even in the '80s, not bad. But uh, but they lost a lot of expats and they lost the military bases there. I think that's problem for them. Um, we all seen, I mean, we've seen the growth. The growth is in the UAE and, it's, and it continues. Uh, but I think Saudi's going to be interesting. I think as they're opening up, you know, I think Saudi's going to be very, very interested in the next five to 10 years. I think we'll see a lot more development there. I really do. Yeah, I would love to see them more involved, you know, like with the, the West Asia than it is now. Um, yeah. So you, from... Arabian uh, Gulf rugby. How did you get involved with Harlequins, Abu Dhabi Harlequins? Okay, so when I first arrived in Abu Dhabi, I arrived into Abu Dhabi. So I, 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 uh, I that's the rugby team I first started. They were called the Bats, uh, and I played for them. Became captain of the team. Found them a grass pitch, uh, and I, I played for. Uh, I don't know what seven seasons, I guess, and uh, I also played for the Arabian Gulf for two World Cup campaigns. So I sort of get involved locally, but I was getting a bit older, you know. And I had, I got an injury, got a neck injury actually at the Dubai Sevens, and I think a semi final against Dubai Exiles, and uh, that put me out of rugby. I, I have four damaged discs in my neck, so that was it for me. Um, but well, I stayed with the club. I became coach, player coach, and then coach for the club. I then went on to become chairman. 
Uh, I then moved to become chairman of the Arabian Gulf. And then when I finished Arabian Gulf, I then went back to be chairman of Abu Dhabi Rugby. And today I'm president of the club. I've stepped down as chairman, now I'm president of the club. So I'm still involved with the club. Where the Harlequins bit came in was a lot of the players used to work for me. I used to try to employ, as we all do here, how do we get players here? We employ them yeah. if you can. So um, one of the times I think is when I was chairman of the Arabian Gulf, the, one of the people on the committee um, was saying, you know, we can't get sponsorship from Etihad. So uh, I had a couple of meetings with them and they, they didn't really come in. We don't do sponsorship locally, blah, blah, blah. So, but then they saw them sponsoring Harlequins, London. So I said, I'll tell you what, next time you're in the UK, go along to Harlequins Rugby Club, have a chat with them, get them to talk to Etihad, then go back and talk to them and say, look, we're an affiliate, become an affiliate member of Harlequins, go in that way. And that's what happened. So the why Abu Dhabi Bats became Abu Dhabi Harlequins was because of the sponsorship, basically. So with Etihad, uh, and that worked for, I don't know, I think about 10 years. I think we 10, 12 years relationship with Etihad and Harlequins. So, yeah, it definitely worked. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And now, you know, obviously retired from, from rugby, but um, this, this season there's going to be um, uh, Super Vets, which is great for the likes of, you know, me. I, I'm old and knackered now. I, I can't really play anymore. What are your thoughts on on Vets Rugby having more of a, uh, a chance to shine out here? I think it's great. I think it's brilliant. I mean, certainly um, certainly, what I see uh, at club level is that the, it's funny that the Vets and the ladies seem to share common interests, especially socially. Um, and I see the Vets getting involved with, you know, helping uh, women's rugby here. And... Uh, which is really, it's a really good amalgamation and socially they're brilliant. So it really brings the club together, I think. I think that's great on that side. And it, I think if we can keep the interest, because obviously that's one of the issues, isn't it? When when you're not playing anymore, you're not, in, you're not involved with the club, all that knowledge, all that passion, all that experience is lost. So if we can keep it in the club, if we can keep those super vets involved, uh, also, I think financially, you know, these guys are probably at a different stage of their lives. You know, your super vets have got a bit more cash around. So, you know, if, if there's events going on, they'll they'll support the club. If they're involved with the club, they'll support the club. Uh, and as we know, you know, funds here are much needed. So I think it works in a number of ways. Those corporate contacts, those not them necessarily personally, but just their corporate contacts and, and stuff and stuff like that. And uh, if you go back to your home country, no matter what country you're from, you know, you see that, don't you? You see, you know, the, the player reunions. You see the, you know, the old bets in the in the corner talking about the good old days when they were far better than they, you know, than anyone else in the world. You know, all those stories and stuff like that. I think that's the thing that keeps this sport alive, and and I think it's very important. So, yeah, I think it's great, great idea. Um, it's particularly appealing to me because um, I've been under the wrath of my wife for the last eight years since <laughs> I stopped playing. She warned me there's no chance you're getting on that rugby pitch again. But I told her about the um, one of the rules that could be brought in about if you're wearing some pink shorts or something like that, it means you don't you don't get tackled, which I thought was absolutely amazing. But yeah. not just for vets, that could be brought throughout the whole of all the age levels, you know, like really get 
get it inclusive um because it's an amazing it's an amazing sport so yeah that was really quite appealing appealing to me yeah Um, so what what one final thing that i just want to touch on with you is like bringing us to the rugby here today um what do you think the game needs to get more teams from division one up to premiership level yeah um again that's that's uh, a, good, a good question so i think the problem is there's a talent pool well from what i can see there is a talent pool of players that that, that do move around from club to club depending what's on offer and i think that sort of is a bit of an issue because these teams trying to play up a level without having those that sort of quality of player in their side is very difficult uh, and having the depth of players is very difficult you know we we see today look at you know you look at the squads just playing in the world cup I mean they're all bringing on their reserves aren't they you know and they, they, today you need those squads you can't you can't you just can't compete with a, a basic squad of 20 guys anymore you, you need that 25 30 plus guys in a squad to be able to compete and I think that that is an issue for for the lower level clubs, and if they do have one or two great players in their side, they want to play the highest level of rugby. So naturally, if they can play for a, you know first division, they're they're going to. So um, I, I think I'm not sure what the answer is to that because I don't think we have yet, but it is still growing. I don't think we have enough talent in the player pool to have more teams at the top level. We've seen teams come up and go down straight away, you know, or they've run out of cash or whatever it is. They, they've run out of the ability. They say, no, I can't say cash, can I? They've run out of the ability to uh, attract players uh, into their club and then they've dropped out of that division. So, and it is expensive to run a club. It's very expensive here. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's making that, maybe that next tier more competitive I suppose, to make sure that people stay in the sport. Um, and I think it is good to have feeders into the first team. Um, we had this thought a long time ago, actually, that teams that that perhaps were in the second division that didn't have teams in the first division, maybe they should have an association with a team in the first division where if they have got talented players, they could go, you know, be there for selection yeah, process. Yeah. Yeah, you do in the UK, don't you? You know, you have your Babs and your Exeters and your teams like this that will have players that are, you know, with local clubs that they're on call if they, you know, if they need someone to stand in. Now, that sort of idea, it might give them the opportunity to at least play at a higher level. I don't, I don't know. Um, just a thought. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think interestingly, at the moment in the UK, they're doing that um, competition where you've got the next tier playing against premiership clubs, haven't you? And I've seen like Doncaster and uh, Jersey Reds. Find us, uh, yeah, yeah, they're beating the Premiership clubs, which is obviously they're not at full strength at the moment. But it's, great it's not by one or two points. It's quite big gaps, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe there's that opportunity that the top clubs in that first division get to play in a playoff or a cup sort of competition. I mean, in the old days there was a cup, there was a league and a cup. Yeah. And in the cup, every club got to play in the cup. So everyone had a chance to progress to the top. So, you know, I mean, even when I played back in the 90s, Alcobar, uh, Eagles, 
uh, were in the final against Abu Dhabi. I mean, they made it all the way through, beating all the UAE clubs, Bahrain, whatever, and and got to the final. But they only got through. They're not in. They weren't in the league back in those days, uh, Saudi. So, but they had the opportunity to play through the cup process. So maybe there's a cup opportunity here for those clubs. Maybe that can yeah. play up to the Premiership. Maybe. Okay. Well. Andy Cole, thank you very much for coming on the uh, the Yellow Rugby podcast. It's been a pleasure. You're, you're a legend of the sport out here. <laughs> a legend. <Yeah. laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. It's been fantastic. It's been has been fantastic here. Really has. And uh, and it's and it's thanks for talking and giving me the time to Sorry. talk to you as well. Lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs>